Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we continue our coverage of the fallout from the police shooting of yet another black man. This time, 20-year-old Dante White. He leaves behind a two-year-old son. He was killed in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. Kim Potter, police officer for 26 years who shot uh, Dante, resigned as did the police chief, Tim Gannon. And 10 miles away from where uh, Dante was killed, the trial of Derek Chauvin. The police officer charged with the murder of George Floyd continues with the defense beginning to make their case on behalf of Derek Chauvin. Our guest is Mick Crenshaw, the Northwest Regional Director of Hip Hop Congress. He was raised in both Chicago and Minneapolis. Also, a victory for environmentalists up against big business in Malaysia. We speak with Mr. Charles Hector, a human rights attorney who is being legally harassed for his work on behalf of eight villagers who are protectors of the environment. Also joining us, Nina Lopez of the UK-based Legal Action for Women, who garnered international support for Mr. Hector's case. And the California Poor People's Campaign is holding an event entitled The Power to Heal End Inequalities in Health Care. Uh, information about that event can be found on the KPFK and KPFA websites. We speak with uh, Betty Dumas Empton. She is a and a healthcare for all campaigner also our weekly earth minute we live in a global world we're all interrelated so on sojourner truth we work to bring directly to you news and views on local national and international policies and stories that affect us all and we draw out how those of us most impacted women communities of color and other communities are responding we also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics now for our news headlines for Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Hundreds of protesters gathered for a third night outside the Brooklyn Center Minneapolis Police Department to protest Sunday's fatal police shooting of 20-year-old Dante Wright. They defied a 10 p.m. curfew. Some threw bricks and other objects at police. Dozens were arrested. Wright's Aunt Naisha spoke to an emotional gathering earlier in the day. They murdered my nephew. She killed my nephew. Listen. I watched that video like everybody else watched that video. That woman held that gun out in front of her for a long damn time. A long damn time. My nephew was 20 years old. 20 years old. Wright's aunt and others were not satisfied with the news that Officer Kim Potter and the police chief both tendered their resignations yesterday. The chief had explained that Potter mistook her gun for her taser. But Wright family attorney Jeff Storms denounced the police characterization of the incident as an accident, saying, An accident is knocking over a glass of milk. It's not an accident to take your gun out of your holster. How many times in training over the course of 25 years has this officer pulled, aimed, and shot her firearm in practice? So don't tell us it's an accident. 
because it undermines the tragic lost life that this family has experienced. A decision on whether to charge 26-year veteran police officer Kim Potter could come as early as today. A use of force expert testified that former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was justified in pinning George Floyd to the ground because Floyd kept struggling. The witness, Barry Broad, testified for the defense at Chauvin's murder trial. He contradicted a parade of authorities from both inside and outside the Minneapolis police force who said Chauvin used excessive force and violated his training. At one point, Broad suggested that if Floyd were being compliant, he would have had both hands in the small of his back and just be resting comfortably. That prompted an incredulous response from the prosecutor who said George Floyd was moving because he was struggling to breathe by shoving his shoulder into the pavement. An advisory panel to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention today plans to review the rare cases of blood clotting following administration of the Johnson & Johnson coronavirus vaccine. All six reported U.S. cases of blood clotting were among women between the ages of 18 and 48. One woman died, another was hospitalized in severe condition. Nearly 7 million doses of J&J vaccine have been administered. The CDC and Food and Drug Administration recommended a pause on the use of the J&J vaccine while health officials study the issue. White House COVID-19 team coordinator Jeff Sine said he doesn't expect the pause will derail President Biden's goal of 200 million vaccines by his first 100 days in office. This um, announcement will not have a significant impact on our vaccination program. The J&J vaccine makes up less than 5% of the more than 190 million recorded shots in arms in the United States to date. More than 68 million people in the U.S. are fully vaccinated. COVID-19 has killed more than 563,000 people in this country. President Biden plans to formally announce later today he's withdrawing all U.S. troops from Afghanistan on September 11th. That will mark the 20th anniversary of the attacks on the U.S. planned and launched from Afghanistan by al-Qaeda. Laura Rothschild-Tellum filed this report. The president has been consistent in his view that there's not a military solution to Afghanistan, that we have been there for far too long. That's White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki commenting on President Joe Biden's expected announcement today that U.S. troops will leave Afghanistan by September 11th. Biden delayed an original withdrawal deadline of May 1st, which former President Donald Trump had set. Several recent intelligence reports point to slim chances of a peace deal between the Afghan government and the Taliban. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Laura Rossbrow-Tellum. Oakland Congresswoman Barbara Lee says she applauds and strongly supports the news that President Biden will keep his promise to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan, effectively ending the longest war in American history. Lee was the sole member of Congress to vote against the authorization for the use of military force against Afghanistan. She famously said during congressional debate, let us not become the evil that we deplore. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth on Tuesday, April 13th. Uh, hundreds of people in Minnesota gathered for a third night of protests against the police killing of yet another black man, this time 20-year-old uh, Dante Wright. 
Since his murder on Sunday, April 11th, demonstrations have taken place each night in and around Brooklyn Center, a suburb of Minneapolis. On Tuesday night, police yet again cracked down on protesters, launching pepper spray and flash bombs against them. Protesters have been peacefully demonstrating, chanting slogans like justice for Dante Wright and say his name. Police claim that some protesters threw rocks and water bottles at them. Police in Brooklyn Center made upwards of 60 arrests, this according to CNN. Protests have also spread to other cities across the United States, including Los Angeles, New York, and Philadelphia. Many are questioning the excuse first given for the killing that a police officer with 26 years of experience mistook her gun for a taser. Some protesters are denying that this was the case and claim the officer knew the difference between a gun and a taser, or at least she should have known the difference. Prosecutors are said to decide whether to charge the officer, authorities say, shot Dante as soon as today. The Brooklyn Center Police Department released body camera footage a day after the shooting. The Washington County prosecutor is deliberating charges for former Brooklyn Center police officer Kim Potter, who submitted a resignation letter alongside police chief Tim Gannon. It was Tim Gannon who made the claim that the officer Kim Potter had made a mistake. Dante's family expressed grief and anger, calling for accountability, and questioned why police even felt the need to use force at all on their loved one. Katie, Dante's mother, recalled the phone call she had with her son when he called to ask for advice after police pulled him over. At the news conference, Wright's family was joined by Benjamin Crump, the attorney representing George Floyd's family and several of Floyd's family members. Sunday's murder of Dante is at least the third murder of a black man during a police encounter in the Minneapolis area in the last five years. Um, you know, that includes uh, Philando Castile in Falcon Heights in 2016 and the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis last year. Meanwhile, 10 miles away from where Dante Wright was killed on Tuesday, April 23rd, marked day 12 of the trial of Derek Chauvin, the white police officer who killed George Floyd in May of 2020. The prosecution in Chauvin's murder trial rested its case a Tuesday morning, allowing the defense to begin to present its side. Chauvin's attorney called six witnesses, including a park police officer who was called to the scene at Cup Foods and a woman who was in the car with uh, George Floyd when police arrived. Shawanda Hill, the friend of George Floyd, who was in the back seat of the car when they approached, they were approached by officers, testified that she ran into Floyd at the Cup Foods convenience store and he offered to give her a ride home. She said they talked in the parked car for a while and at one point while she was on the phone, she noticed that Floyd had fallen asleep. Barry Broad, a defense use of force expert, testified that he believed 
believed Chauvin acted reasonably. When questioned by the prosecution, he conceded several points, mainly that the prone position can cause pain. At the start of the trial, Broad said he doesn't consider prone control to be a use of force, saying it didn't cause pain. Chauvin's defense is expected to finish presenting its case this week with closing arguments um, right now, as far as we know, slated for this coming Monday. Uh, before we welcome our guests, let us go to a clip from uh, BBC uh, covering uh, these uh, police killings. There's been a second night of violence on the streets of Minneapolis. Riot police face crowds of protesters angered by the fatal shooting of a black man. 20-year-old Daunt Wright was shot and died at the weekend after what the police say was an accident when an officer mistook her gun for a taser during a traffic stop. Tonight, the officer who shot him and the city's police chief have resigned. The shooting happened just a few miles from where the George Floyd murder trial is underway. From Minneapolis, Nick Bryant sent this report and a warning that it contains some distressing images. It's a uniquely American story we've told many times before. Yet another police station besieged by yet another protest after yet another shooting of an unarmed African-American. There was fury on the streets of Brooklyn Center last night. America's latest racial flashpoint just 10 miles away from where the trial is taking place of the white police officer accused of murdering George Floyd. It began as a boisterous but non-violent demonstration. A response to the police shooting of a 20-year-old black man, Dante Rice by a female officer who claims to have mistaken her handgun for a taser. Do you know the difference between a gun and a taser? <laughs> the police were determined to enforce a curfew that came into effect as dusk turned into night. And determined to force the protesters off the streets. Let us welcome our guest, uh, Mick Crenshaw, who was born and raised in Chicago and Minneapolis. He currently resides in Portland, Oregon. Crenshaw is an independent hip-hop artist, a respected MC, a poet, educator, and an activist. Crenshaw is the lead U.S. organizer for the African hip-hop caravan and uses cultural activism as a means to develop international solidarity related to human rights and justice through hip-hop and popular education. Uh, Mike is the Northwest Regional Director of Hip-Hop Congress. Mike Crenshaw, welcome back. Thank you so much, Margaret. How are you doing? Uh, Okay, so um, before we get to the the latest in, in the Siobhan uh, trial, let us um, talk about the most recent killing now in Minneapolis, 20-year-old Dante Wright. I mean, uh, Mike, last time you were on the show, which wasn't that long ago, who would have thunk that just 10 miles away from where the trial of uh, Derek Siobhan taking place, yet another killing? of uh, Dante Wright. Um, what is your view on, on what's happening and also this claim that the police officer, 26 years of experience, thought her gun was a taser? Mick Crenshaw. Uh, a couple of things. Unfortunately, I believe that 
the killings of black people by police um, of other people of color, specifically Latinx people, Native American people, they're going to continue um, into the foreseeable future because they represent a handful of underlying systemic problems that need to change on a systemic level. And that's an unanswered question in terms of how long it will take to change these systemic issues. I'm talking primarily about white supremacy as an underlying core value of the institutions of policing in this country. And I'm talking about legal aspects of policing, like qualified immunity that protect officers from legal consequences in uh, cases of the use of excessive force, violation of civil rights, and police murder. Yeah, I mean, make this business about uh, it being a systemic problem. I mean, we often hear in the media or by elected officials, well, th this is just a few bad apples. Uh, but you see case after case after case. And you and I both walk in the same skin, being of, of African descent. And we know very well that at every moment that we leave our homes until we return to our homes, and even when we're in our homes, as happened with, with Brianna uh, Taylor, that you are at risk, uh, that your skin in and of itself is, is seen as a threat. Um, so th there is the, the historic uh, context of, of this, but as you say, it is, it is continuing uh, day in and day out. So what are some of the things that you think need to happen to address this? I think, you know, this, this debate, this conversation has forced me and many of us to have to look deeper at how do we make systemic change. There's a, a call for defunding of police. There's calls for various reforms. And there's calls for the abolition, the complete abolition of police as an institution. I think that we need to understand the protests have to happen. The demonstrations have to happen. The public outcry is going to happen because people are upset. And we have a long tradition of that activity in this country. But think we have to look deeper than the emotional expression of protesting and demonstrating. We have to figure out how to create systems for accountability so that we have legal protections from police force. We also have to create systems of accountability where the consequences for the use of police force impact the police department and the individual police officers in a way where it becomes no longer viable for them to think that they can get away with murder and harming us. At the same time, we have to keep our eyes on the prize of dismantling white supremacy and decolonizing and actually one day creating a society in which we are responsible for our safety and that responsibility is taken out of the state agencies that don't have accountability towards us. One thing I wanted to, to touch on was this whole, I, that I forgot to touch on with the first question, that this woman who's a 26-year veteran of the police force um, and, and the leader of the police union had forgot, had uh, somehow mistaken her gun for her taser, we all know that that's baloney. Um, the history of Brooklyn Center is one in which the town was founded by a member of the Ku Klux Klan who was also the local sheriff, who also founded the state troopers, 
and who also was a member of the Eugenics Society, which is a racist belief in genocide as a, as a means of social control. Sean King published an article about that. So we just we have to acknowledge everything. And to acknowledge everything, it takes a long time to say because there are so many details that give context to the fact that this is a white supremacist incident of racial terror at the hands of police. Yeah, and, you know, Mick, the, a lot of coverage, of course, Portland got for the continuing protests after the murder of George Floyd, and then the incredible um, militarization of the police in, in Portland, but we are definitely seeing that now going on in, in, in Brooklyn Center, um, Minnesota. Uh, but just putting this in some context here, because this militarization of the police, I mean, when you read the report that the Capitol Police were told basically to kind of, you know, not handle with kid gloves, but not really um, do what they needed to do against the, the Trump supporters, many of whom were white supremacists who invaded the U.S. Capitol, threatening to kill members of Congress, right, and then were just allowed to walk out. And given then how protesters, Black Lives Matter protesters, are treated. So uh, your comment on that. But also the wider implications of this militarization of, of the police, because you know, it has international repercussions. We see and uh, have heard, for example, that Israel helps to train uh, some of the military aspects of policing in the United States. But that also, you had a situation in Haiti where um, Donald Trump was sending money and, and tear gas uh, for weapons to be used against grassroots strugglers on the ground in Haiti. So this business about the um, institutional racism and the militarization of, of police is a problem for us here living in the United States, but also particularly for people of color in other parts of the world. Mick Crenshaw. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited that, we're, that you're connecting the dots, Margaret, for our listeners, because that's what we, we need to be able to do as people is to understand that the root of Western expansion of European empire, of white supremacy, of patriarchy, of capitalism, the extraction of resources for the consolidation wealth depended on the destruction and subjugation of whole populations of people. The subjugation of people of African descent forcibly displaced to the Western Hemisphere in places like Haiti, North America, the Caribbean, Central America, and South America has created the root of the Western police state apparatus that has become a global apparatus that is really the little brother of the military-industrial complex, occupying forces using violence to control a local population as an extension of settler colonialism. So it makes sense that Israel, being a settler colonial state, there to subjugate and commit acts of genocide and atrocities against Palestinian people in a land grab, it would make sense that their methods of controlling the population through violence, coercion, and force would be something that could inform U.S. police departments on how to do the same thing. The extraction of resources that created wealth 
in this country and the ways that those resources were extracted and the people who were relied on to extract them, be it displacement and genocide against Native American people, forced enslavement of African people, or Chinese labor, or even poor white labor in some instances, the police rose as a response to those people fighting for their rights, for those people wanting to be liberated and for those people wanting to be free. So the police is a local occupying military force that controls the interests of private property and wealth extraction by using violence to control the population. And as manufacturing is transformed and less people are employable because of the technological advances, that means that there are going to be more people who are forced out of work. And the only way the police see fit to control the population in an economic crisis exacerbated by the pandemic is violence. So we have to think creatively as, as working people and as a society about how do we reorganize ourselves in the context of a society where more and more of us need to figure out how to support ourselves, not just economically, but in terms of community defense and sustaining our lives when we know we have a violent force that only knows how to use violence. Right. And the thing is, is that certainly the history, for example, in Los Angeles with the LAPD, with um, the late uh, police chief, uh, Daryl Gates, but also in other cities where people were recruited specifically, they were looking for folks with white supremacist views in Los Angeles. I'm sure this is true in other parts of the country as well. And also in, in terms of the military, uh, we note that close to um, a military base, for example, um, out the Marine base in 29 Palms, uh, California, there is a Trump center very on the lead up to the road to that base because because they're also recruiting white supremacists, and some of them actually go into the military to get that kind of training. So that that really underscores uh, some of, of what you're saying and, and said quite well, Mick Crenshaw. But um, also, you may have some thoughts on that, but this business now of the defense and the switching now to the Chauvin trial, uh, you know, one of the, the witnesses, um, I think it was this Barry Bro talking about um, George Floyd should have been resting comfortably, right, on the sidewalk and that there was no pain at all. I mean, just your reaction to this kind of thing being said in well, the courts. This, well, this is a very white supremacist mindset. And, you know, unfortunately, there are some people of color who work in institutions who have internalized and adopted this mindset. We are brutes in the eyes of these people. We are people who are less than human. We don't feel as much pain, and we have the intelligence of animals. So we're not fully developed. Uh, we're, we're, we're a lower part of the species in the mind of some of these people, and therefore it takes force to subdue us because we're such a threat. Uh, our physical stature is such a threat. You hear Siobhan on one of the tapes talking about, one of the videos talking about how he had to do that because he called George Floyd a sizable guy. Okay? Now, a person cannot control how the, the, the rate of growth in their body. You know what I'm saying? The, the, the size of one's body is, is not a justification for the use of force. 
anybody can see with their own eyes that George Floyd was in distress and begging for his life, with not one but four grown men subduing him in a way in which he, he suffocated. So the fact that we live in a society where experts actually have a platform, so-called experts actually have a platform to get up in a courtroom and then to have whatever uh, they're saying be reinforced by the media in such a way where people who aren't thinking critically, people who already have racist beliefs, are going to take that information as if it is true. And it influences the public perspective. So, again, this goes back to the roots of white supremacist thinking in the minds of people who are working for institutions that impact our safety. Right, well, uh, Mick Crenshaw, Mike Crenshaw, we are going to have to leave it there, but we're going to have you back because all of this is uh, just continuing. And, of course, today we're going to know if charges are going to be brought in the Brooklyn Center um, shooting there of uh, Dante Wright. And it looks as though the defense will be wrapping up their case uh, later on this week. So we'll be speaking with you again. Uh, Mike Crenshaw, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your work. Thank you, Margaret. All righty. We're going to take a short station break now. And coming up, we're going to be joined um, by Charles Hector, a human rights lawyer who's based in Malaysia, as well as Nina Lopez, um, who is a joint coordinator with the Global Women's Strike and in this instance representing Legal Action for Women and our weekly Earth Minute, as well as health care for all. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. And that is the late, great Bob Marley. Get up, stand up. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our uh, Facebook page. You're a member of Facebook. Look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. And our website should be back up uh, very, very shortly there. Uh, we had a crash, but it's, it should be back where we have our community calendar videos and a lot of other stories. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners um, in the United States. A shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in, uh, let's see, Atlanta, Georgia. How about Atlanta today? And internationally in Malaysia. Malaysia um, giving a nod to um, uh, the one of our guests who is hails from Malaysia. We're going to go to our weekly Earth Minute, and then we'll go to uh, human rights defenders in Malaysia and defenders of the environment. Canadian history is repeating itself as hundreds of activists blockade old-growth trees in a small protected area called Avatar Grove near the Fairy Creek watershed on southern Vancouver Island. The blockade is reminiscent of the massive campaign to save Clayquot Sound in 1993 where thousands were arrested. The movement to halt the government from cutting the last 3% of giant old-growth trees left in the province began more than eight months ago. While it started as a campaign to stop logging in a single watershed, it has grown thanks to widespread frustration with the British Columbia government's broader approach to old-growth logging. 
According to The Guardian, activists and forestry experts say a tiny fraction of the province's giant old-growth trees are left standing, and an immediate moratorium on cutting them is needed. In order to respond to climate change, we must avoid repeating history. Keeping old-growth trees intact should be part of a larger priority to protect existing forests, which are our most climate-resilient lands. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church with Global Justice Ecology Project. All righty, and this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. <clears throat> there can be no doubt that we are in the midst of an environmental catastrophe. As the Biden administration has re-entered the Paris Agreement on Climate, environmentalists nevertheless have warned that steps outlined in the agreement are far from enough and represent a greenwashing of the crisis. Others question whether true solutions to the climate crisis can be found under capitalism. While the movement for the environment is portrayed in the media as mainly white and Western-based, indigenous communities in the Americas and other parts of the global South have traditionally been keepers of the land, and they are playing a key role in fighting for the environment, even as their communities are paying the heaviest price for environmental devastation. Frontline communities in the Americas, Asia, and Africa are also increasingly under physical and other attacks by logging fo fossil fuel and other industrial companies with the complicity of governments who support them with the goal of undermining the work of frontline communities on behalf of the earth. In Malaysia, human rights defenders, including a people's lawyer representing them, uh, is under attack by the uh, government there and by some uh, corporate entities, as well as the mainstream media. Mr. Charles Hector represents eight villagers in uh, Charantut who are protesting planned logging in a local forest. And we'll find out why and um, get an update uh, from him about his case. But I'd like to welcome uh, Charles Hector, who is a highly respected human rights lawyer who has defended freedom of assembly, the rights of women, indigenous people, migrants and refugees, workers, trade unionists, urban settlers, as well as land rights and administration of justice. He is a former member of the Bar Council and has been instrumental in developing the Malaysian Bar Legal Aid Doc Brief Program to ensure that all defendants who do not have a lawyer receive free legal advice and legal representation. And uh, Mr. Charles Hector, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Margaret. Okay, I'd also like to welcome uh, Nina Lopez, who is the Joint Coordinator of Global Women's Strike in London, England, and is the founder of Legal Action uh, for Women. Uh, now, Legal Action for Women is a part of this because they issued a letter on behalf of, of Charles Hector that brought his case uh, to international uh, attention and got scores of uh, lawyers in the UK, as well as some in the US and human rights organizations to write a letter uh, to Malaysian authorities um, uh, protesting the treatment of Charles Hector. Uh, Nina Lopez, welcome. Hello, Margaret. Very glad to be on. 
Okay, so um, uh, Charles Hector, let us start with you. Um, tell us about the villagers you um, were and are representing. Um, they are concerned about logging in a local forest. Um, why and um, what has been the impact on them of this logging? Okay, uh, these are Malay villages, no? They are actually, their villages are very adjacent to the forest reserve that is now being threatened to be logged, you know. Uh, interestingly, this community don't have pipe water, you know, from the nature So they have developed a system of, they get their water supply from the natural resources in the forest. They build pipes right up to their home. So they depend on drinking water and water for their daily needs from this forest reserve. Because of the forest, uh, the availability of this natural water supply, it has also affected their decision with regards to the economic activities that they have uh, developed in the community, you know, including fish breeding, which is very sensitive to even the slightest change in water quality from these natural resources. These villages, uh, which actually are coming, which also involves other villages as well, and hundreds of people, have been protesting the logging in this particular forest reserve since 2013. That is quite a long time, no? They have been protesting, they have been uh, submitting petitions and so on and so forth, you know. Uh, now in uh, mid-July last year, then the contractors, logging contractors, have taken an action against eight of these villagers. So interestingly, four of them are the real the leaders of this protest movement in their village. And uh, so they were seeking an injunction. They are, they are claiming that this, this, these villagers are actually uh, blocking and causing disturbances to uh, uh, ability to log and, uh, and, and their workers. Uh, many of these allegations are false, so based anyway, that will be decided by court. Anyway, they were trying to actually get an injunction to stop them, which is the final thing that they think. They got a temporary injunction, and which actually stops them from physically blocking and obstructing uh, the workers. And so th that happened in uh, finally on the 5th of November. So after that, it was down to trial. Because in the preparation of the trial, everyone needs to actually clarify the facts, you know, get verifications of documents, get confirmations of why you say this from potential witnesses and things like that. So when a letter was sent to uh, a person who was the forestry officer to question or to get clarification about the contents or what he meant in his letter, that had been used as a basis for the contractors to file an action in court, an application to commence contempt proceedings, not only against the eight clients that I represent, but also on me as the lawyer representing the district. So this is unprecedented because it automatically uh, uh, cuts me out because if you are going to be cited for contempt, you know, it's, it, you can't represent yourself. And, you, and it's difficult for even you to represent your clients in that particular proceedings. So anyway, that that proceedings cannot, that is actually the rough background. 
So the good news is today on 14th of April, which was the date that was fixed for the judge to give his decision on this, this application for leave uh, to commence contempt proceedings. The hearings were all done on the 8th April. But today suddenly uh, the, the plaintiffs or the contractors, logging contractors, suddenly uh, came to court and said that they are going to withdraw this application. They withdrew uh -huh. the contempt application. So that is the end of the contempt application, but that is just uh, a small episode because the case is still continuing and the next date that is fixed for in terms of trial and in terms of other matters is on the 5th of May. Okay, so you've won one round, and 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 there's more to go. Um, so, yeah. The, uh, yeah, congratulations. By the way, that is a tremendous uh, victory uh, for you and and all your supporters. Now, Nina Lopez, bringing you into this conversation here, um, tell us about this uh, letter of legal action for women, why you you did it, and the impact it, it seems to have had. Nina Lopez. Yeah, right. Well, I have to say that we're absolutely thrilled because we were all waiting with bated breath what was going to happen with the, uh, with the contempt of court. The reason we did the letter, first of all, I have to say that we know Charles Hector, and he is a very respected human rights lawyer, as, as you said. And we know as movement people how dependent we are on movement lawyers. You know, there are not many lawyers who are really dedicated to defending those of us at the grassroots, especially in the global south, where we are facing these massive corporations trying to take away our land and our resources, our livelihood, our lives. So when a lawyer like Charles Hector is under threat of being disbarred, we know that we have to mobilize for support because we know that those villagers who are making such a big fight to stop those loggers are dependent on Charles Hector to make their case in court. And so we have a legal service, and we decided to mobilize, first of all, the lawyers in our network to get them to take a position so that the, the government and the authorities in Malaysia knew that this case was being watched internationally and that if there was collusion between local authorities and corporations, it was going to be exposed because people were watching. And I must say, people responded very well. We had 21 human rights lawyers who signed on very quickly, including a QC of Queen's Council, Michael Mansfield, who's a very famous a uh, lawyer who has fought many miscarriages of justice cases here in the UK, as well as 60 organizations from about 17, and individuals from about 17 countries. And I think people know, you know, now with the, what's happening with the climate emergency, people know how dependent we are um, in the, the fight that people are making in the global south. You know, it's one struggle. And we haven't always acknowledged that. You know, 331 people were killed last year, human rights defenders, mainly in the global south, mainly indigenous people protecting land and land rights, 
some corporations, some loggers, like the, these villages that Charles Hector is uh, representing, have lost their lives. You know, people like Berta Cáceres, whom, of course, everyone knows. And we just, we just have to, you know, we have to do everything we can, working internationally in an accountable way to stop these uh, abuses, you know, these assassinations, these this criminalization, you know, of, uh, of our movement and of our lives. Right. Thank you for that, uh, Nina, of course. And uh, Charles Hector, back to you. And I'll have to say, um, you know, I'm a, a bit of a fan there because I have been following your work, of course, being part of the Global Women's Strike and getting uh, information from you, from our friends in the region. And the, the level of creativity, I'll have to say, on your work and your organizing, uh, not only in relation to this particular uh, issue, but but many others, I'll have to say, to me is rare and really outstanding. So thank you for that and thank you for your work, uh, Charles Hector. Now, for people, though, who are concerned about what is happening on the ground, you had this huge victory today, but you continue to be under threat as well as the, the eight people that you have been representing. So what are some of the things uh, that people can do? Uh, where can they get information? What can they do? Because I'm afraid we are out of time for this particular segment, Charles Hector. Okay. Uh, in terms of in terms of the community human rights defenders, like these eight people, uh, they are just ordinary folk, you know, small income earners kind of thing, you know. And now they are suddenly now being confronted by logging contractors, uh, whereby the license holder is the general manager of the Pahang State Foundation, you know. That means it's actually closely linked. So they are actually facing state and 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 uh, and corporations kind of things, you know. So in a sense, also because they are in in Jalantur and they are ordinary people, they also do not get much media exposure, you know, because you know it is not big news as though it's some big politicians. So, so there is a lot of things, and and we must we must support the courage that these people have been taking and the commitment that they have been taking since 2013, because it involves hundreds of people, hundreds of people, and it involves five ordinary villages, you know. And so it, it, it's quite an extraordinary uh, situation. So in terms of support kind of things, is that I think so in terms of, yes, the contempt proceedings have been withdrawn. That is one. The possibility of other further contempt proceedings coming up in the future is also still there. The trial is still going, hasn't been commenced. But at the same time, see, they have been protesting logging. You know? But since that order, somewhere in January, the contractors came in and started clearing the, the roads and started and, and building the the uh, access road to the logging area. So the thing is that we don't know the status because of the injunction order that prevents the defendants from dealing or communicating with the authorities. That means the order itself says you know, that you can't actually go to the authorities and find out what exactly is happening at this moment. So they had a risk that tomorrow maybe, tomorrow maybe the tractors might come in and they will start the logging. And if they have started the logging and once they which would end in maybe a couple of months, and that is it, the people have lost their entire struggle 
distinct and they will be badly impacted by the effects of the logging with no uh, confirm, no confirmation or no even uh, positive assurance that they will actually get uh, uh, compensation assistance. Right. And another thing about this forest is that recently we came to know that we discovered a critically endangered bird, the helmeted hornbill. And that helmeted hornbill, for example, in Thailand, is about 100 over or existing birds kind of things. In Malaysia, the figures are not available, so we don't know. Could it be 10, could it be 100, could it be more? So the thing is also that this particular forest needs to be saved because it is a ha habitat of the helmeted hornbill. So in terms of support, you know, uh, continuous support kind of things would help a lot, you know. Even okay. in terms, because they are, they are not well off and they're actually quite a uh, poor community itself, you know. Financial support will also be most helpful in terms of their combating this whole case. Because okay. even now, well, as a case... Charles Hector, I'm yes. afraid we, we have run a bit over time, and I do want... Yes. But thank you for that, and we'll have yes. you back for sure, and when it's safe for you to speak with us. And Nina Lopez, for people who might still want to consider um, signing on to the letter and uh, finding out more about this campaign, can you quickly tell us what they should do? Is there a website or a place they can go to? Contact us at law at allwomencount.net. It's legal action for women. We have a website. We're going to continue supporting this case and exposing what's going on and defending these villages. And hopefully we can win the whole case now that we've won the contempt of court being dropped. Right. So okay. please do get in touch. And you can also get in touch through, glo through uh, the Global Women's Strike, as Margaret mentioned. Right. Well, I'm afraid we are going to have to leave it there. Nina Lopez and Charles Hector, again, congratulations on, on your work. We'll continue to cover this case. By the way, we've been carrying information on the Sojourner Truth website as well, so people could go to So True Radio uh, to get any updates that we are able to post. Thank you so much for joining us, and stay safe. Be well. Bye-bye. Alrighty, and uh, we're now going to wrap up our show focusing on health care uh, for all. The California Poor People's Campaign has an event coming up on Sunday, April 18th, uh, The Power to Heal, Ending Inequality for Health Care. But I'd like to say for our listeners in other parts of the country, we're going to be dealing generally with um, ending inequality in health care. So please uh, tune in and information can be found on the KPFK website, also on the KPFA uh, website, and also on the So True Radio website. So we do know that um, healthcare inequalities actually are historic, of course, but they have also widened, if one is to believe this, uh, during uh, COVID. From healthcare for babies to treatment of asthma, discrepancies in healthcare based on race exist in all areas of medical treatment. While doctors can no longer legally turn away patients based on race, major gaps in the quality of treatment continue to undermine the health of communities of uh, color. And there are so many examples uh, of this. Um, so, and there are people like 
our guest, Betty Dumas Toto, who is an activist and organizer, facilitator, and campaigner for healthcare for all and Medicare for all, who's trying to do something about this. Betty, thank you for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for having me and, and good morning. Okay. Um, so, Betty, you know, the focus, first of all, I'm really delighted that at this event on Sunday the 18th, and people could go to the California Poor People's Campaign website also for more information, uh, we'll be showing a 30-minute version of the film The Power to Heal, because we have promoted this film uh, during our fun drive. I, I love this film, and also we recently did an interview with the filmmaker, uh, Barbara Burney, who will be one of the panelists um, who will be presenting at this event. So before we talk a little bit about the legislation that you're helping to support, uh, Betty, tell us a little bit about what this event um, will look like. Oh, well, um, you know, this is going to be an extremely rich um, uh, event. It's at 3 o'clock uh, on, on Sunday on Zoom and live streamed on Facebook. And uh, it will be hosting a 30-minute screening of Power to Heal documentary and a webinar with special guests Dr. Barbara Burney, the producer and creator of the film, Dr. Chandra Shapur, director of the Center of the Study of Racism, Social Justice, and Health at UCLA, a nurse representative from California Nurses Association, the union sponsoring the current California legislation, AB 1400, the Guaranteed Health Care for All Act, which will establish a Medicare for All-like system in California. We'll hear from Rose Escobar from SEIU 1000. We will be hearing from people that are impacted by this current uh, profit-first health care or, I should say, health insurance system and um, also um, from a home care, uh, care uh, health care provider. Right. And, you know, Betty, one of the things, and, and again, for people who are concerned about uh, health care for all across the country, you know, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, a lot of Bernie supporters and others are f feel very strongly about this. Um, we're certainly hoping that they will tune in, as I will be, as um, the movement for quality health care for all. Um, but also... Um, you know, uh, Betty, I mean, this country has had such a hard time grappling with with um, providing health care for all. I mean, the best they've come up with is what is popularly known as Obamacare, and there are a lot of problems with, with Obamacare. But tell us a bit more about your efforts and also about this piece of legislation, AB uh, 1400. I, I want to just make clear that the Poor People's Campaign in itself doesn't endorse legislation, but certainly the demand for health care for all is part of the Jubilee platform of the Poor People's Campaign. Um, so, Betty, tell us about this legislation and why you're supporting it. Yes, um, absolutely. Well, while, um, while the uh, Affordable Care Act, otherwise known, otherwise known as Obamacare, has uh, gotten us uh, further along with getting people uh, health care, it really has fallen very, very short um, of covering everybody and covering everybody fully and comprehensive uh, with quality care. And that's what um, uh, we are trying uh, to do here in California with AB uh, 1400. Um, the legislation uh, was introduced uh, 
um, in February. It's AB 1400, the Guaranteed Health Care for All Act, and it's sponsored by the California Nurses Association. Um, and who better to sponsor but nurses who have been on the front lines of this pandemic? It was introduced by Assemblyman uh, uh, Ash Kalras with principal co-authors uh, Miguel Santiago right here from Los Angeles and Alex Lee in Northern California. Um, the bill proposes a single-payer Medicare for All system for California. And as you know, the saying goes, as California goes, so goes the nation. So we uh, feel like we have the best chance here because of the values that we have here in California that we'll be able to get it passed quicker um, and then be an example for the rest of the country. And the bill itself has seven key main principles, which is universal coverage. Everybody in and nobody out. Everybody, regardless of race, sex, gender, country of origin, disability status, immigration status, marital status, age, and income gets the care they need regardless of ability to pay. They, uh, it's a single-payer program, like a Medicare program, um, a single-payer publicly funded through progressive taxation to cover all necessary care in California, eliminating billions in bloat and waste and saving people thousands on their health care costs. It's fully comprehensive and quality benefits, including medical, dental, hearing, vision, mental health, prescription drugs, long-term care, and more. All decisions about care will be made between you and your doctor and nurses, not the insurance companies. And you will have the freedom to choose your care provider. Under CalCare, there would be no more in-network or out-of-network. You would have the freedom to choose any doctor or hospital um, that you'd like. And uh, free at the point of service, which is extremely important, because this is a huge block for many people. Even if they have insurance, they can't afford the co-pays and the deductibles. So there will be no co-pays, premiums, or deductibles. You arrive at the doctor's office, show your CalCare card, and get that care you need. It's that simple. And, of course, it will wow. be a just transition, funding and programs to protect and support any displaced workers in the insurance industry. And there will be patient care based on patient need. No more financial incentives to avoid providing necessary care, including value-based payment models for providers. So this right, is that going sounds, to bring sounds amazing. We, we, oh, we have less than a minute, um, uh, Betty. So for people who want to find out more about this piece of legislation and to support your efforts, uh, what should they do? They should definitely visit. I, um, I work uh, for an organization called Healthcare for All Los Angeles, and our website is hcala.org. Um, and you can go there and find out information, especially under the first 100 days campaign tab, which is our campaign to support uh, 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 the CalCare bill, which is called AB 1400, but it's otherwise known as CalCare bill there. You can also okay. go to bit.ly CalCare sign up um, and also tinyurl.com uh, do you CalCare. So that's tinyurl do you CalCare or bit.ly CalCare sign up.
We're out of time. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, including assistant producer Romero Funes and today's audio engineer. I'd also like to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And remember to visit our website, sotrueradio.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at So True Radio. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.